Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for coming. Um, the concluded meeting last week between President Obama and Xi Jinping um, is the subject today, in particular the effect or non-effect uh, on Taiwan. But um, oh, I should say I'm Seth Cropsey. Uh, uh, senior fellow here at Hudson, and uh, also director of Hudson's um, Center for American Sea Power, which is only tangentially connected with Taiwan's mm -hmm. defense. Uh, in, um, in January of 1914, because I'm going to make some comments and then introduce our speakers, um, but uh, we'll start with my comments. In January of 1914, French President Raymond Poincaré, at some political risk, dined at the German embassy in Paris. The following month, successful Franco-German talks permitted France's participation in funding the enterprise that was intended to connect Berlin to the Persian Gulf. This was part of a series of military and economic measures that the European powers, as well as America, uh, undertook in the years immediately before the outbreak of World War I. This agreement on funding the Berlin Railway didn't address the nationalism interlocking alliances, ambition, and universally held suspicion among the European powers that the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand ignited in June, of, uh, beginning in June, in August of 1914. The agreement last week between the U.S. and China on so-called cap-and-trade measures aimed at reducing the emission of pollutants reminded me of the 1914 Franco-German cooperation on railway, railway building. The 1914 breakthrough united a few of France and Germany's economic and colonial interests. It did not address Europe's fundamental security challenges. The cap-and-trade agreement between the U.S. and China is possible because the latter may share an interest with the former in controlling pollution. But this has nothing to do with the much larger question of China's claims in the international waters of the South and East China Seas. It tells us nothing about China's long-term strategic mm -hmm. objectives in devoting increasing resources to its military where no country threatens it. It resolves nothing in the legal, diplomatic, and military maneuvers by which China aims to expand its dominion to the sea. It leaves blank the question of Beijing's interest in dominating Asia. It offers no clue about how, notwithstanding the policy of four U.S. presidents to encourage China to become a stakeholder in the international order, China continues to conduct cyber and economic espionage against the United States. And as I guess most of you have seen by now, James Clapper, the administration's, uh, Obama administration's director of national intelligence, said yesterday that the cyber agreement that was announced at the visit of Xi Jinping 
carries no penalties for violation. So important questions were sort of left hanging. Would this administration, the Obama administration, impose economic sanctions if China violates the cyber agreement? More important, we learn nothing new about how the U.S. administration regards China. Is it a strategic competitor? If not, why not? And if so, why does, what does the U.S. intend to do? What provisions is the Obama administration prepared to undertake to assure our Asian allies, partners, and friends of our continued dependability? With Taiwan as the geographic pivot of the first island chain, what, if any, message did the Obama administration offer to Xi Jinping of America's commitment, continued commitment, to democratic Taiwan? What should the U.S. be saying? and doing to support the current and future Taiwanese administration's ability to engage China from a position of strength? I think that these questions proceed in importance emissions controls. Now, with us today to offer comments about the recent visit uh, of Xi Jinping, meeting with the yeah. administration, and it's meaning for U.S.-Taiwan relations based on experience and years of observation um, are Michael Pillsbury and Mark Stokes um, and Ian Easton. And am I correct that you have the biographies, the CVs of these three experts in front of you? Well, then I can let them speak and don't have to go into extended introductions. After, uh, after their remarks... We'll have a question period, and I will repeat then what I'm saying now, which is we will ask you to identify yourself and the, your association with whatever you're associated with. Um, Michael? Thank you, Seth. I'm in the very happy position of uh, having written an article last week predicting six aspects of the summit in advance and having been correct about all six. This rarely happens in think tanks or in the intelligence community, so it's worth, it's worth a moment of self-indulgence to point out the methodology I used and why my six predictions were correct. First, I had help. I was in Beijing in late June, early July, had a large number of meetings with Chinese officials and think tanks, and they described what will happen at the summit. So all I really had to do is take them at their word and write an article based on what I was told. Unfortunately, the article caused a lot of friction with my fellow China experts and many others that it was too pessimistic, it couldn't be true. Um, it showed the work of a cynical person. One person even compared it to a book by Douglas Fife called War and Decision. In Douglas Fife's book, he shows with enormous footnotes and then a website of documents that the public version of all the attacks on the Bush administration and Rumsfeld and the Pentagon uh, simply did not reflect what was really going on. In the case of US-China relations and the influence on Taiwan, the effect on Taiwan, something very similar is happening. The way the press 
and scholars are covering the U.S.-China story is not paying attention to the kinds of things that are in Doug Fife's book on how the American government really works. This has happened for most previous summits between the U.S. and China. In fact, a woman at, the, at Georgetown University who died a couple years ago and didn't like me, she's still the best chronicler of the U.S.-China summits. Her name is Nancy Tucker. Uh, in five books, she shows at each summit the president of both sides essentially lied to the public about what happened at the summit. All the media wrote it down. That was the news story. Roughly as long as 30 years later, 30 years later, when documents are declassified or a memoir is published uh, with documents, the public, when it didn't care anymore about what happened at the summit, the public began to grasp what actually had happened. One of her best examples is 1972, the famous Nixon first trip to China, where the press was not told, and it was almost 30 years before it was revealed that while some meetings were going on, Henry Kissinger and some military officers slipped over and gave a top secret briefing to the head of the Chinese military about the Soviet threat to China. And, so, and arrangements were, began to be made that have formed the, one of the most important parts of U.S.-China relations ever since. I tell the story in the 100-year marathon, but the important point is, at the time, at the time when over 100 television and, and print reporters flew to Beijing with Nixon, no one knew this was happening. Now, Nancy Tucker's books and other diplomatic histories of U.S.-China relations stress the same thing. What you see is not what you get. So let us take a look at the um, Chinese forecasts. They said basically six things will not happen. This is while our Western press is saying these six things will happen. First of all, they said there will be no written agreement with sanctions or any written understanding about cybersecurity. What actually happened? The press has written a number of articles saying there's an agreement between the US and China on cybersecurity. Isn't this wonderful? A few reporters have called the White House and said, can we please have a copy of this agreement? Well, guess what? They were told, no, there isn't any written agreement. You heard the two presidents say they pledged that they will do certain things. That's the agreement. The public pledge. Number two, the cap and trade system that Seth Cropsey just mentioned. Some reporters have been asking, where is, maybe please have a copy of this wonderful new environmental breakthrough for a, 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 a cap and trade system that will begin sometime in 2017. No, the reporters are being told there's no really, no written agreement on that either. But we've been hearing about this agreement. Well, no. It's a pledge by the Chinese side, which President Obama then thanked them for, to do something maybe in a year or a year and a half. The Chinese also said in June to me, there will be no discussion or progress on the five PLA officers who were indicted 
in a huge press conference in Washington for cyber espionage. It won't be mentioned. China's not going to get into a discussion of this public indictment. There was also a forecast that the South China Sea will not be discussed, except that President Xi will say since ancient times China has owned these islands, there'll be no promise to halt the dredging, there'll be no promise not to put military equipment or, or radars or anything. The South China Sea will have no agreement and no discussion. Well, that's what happened. This has been a headline story now for six months in Washington. Especially CSIS deserves great credit for releasing satellite photographs, explaining the importance of this. Uh, all kinds of columns have been written about, oh, we must test China or make sure China doesn't continue the South China Sea operations. Did anybody notice what was said? President Xi said exactly what I was told he will say. Since ancient times, this belongs to China. No further discussion. No agreement, not even discussed at the press conference or various White House uh, ex rather extensive uh, press statements have gone out. Fact, I think they're called fact sheets by the White House. So not to bore you with all six of these uh, predictions, but that was the general advanced notice that I and others received what's going to happen at this summit. But there was a positive part. <coughs> President Xi was advised, when you're there, Say things like, when I was young, I read uh, the Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton. Say things that will make American hearts warm and nurture the notion that we in China admire America and we want to become more like America. That's exactly what he said in Seattle, part of a room full of technology CEOs from both China and, and America. He actually said, when I was a young man, I read the Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton. And he mentioned some other things about his warm feelings toward America. So the media wrote that as a huge news story. If the Nancy Tucker theory or the Doug Fife theory of war and decision in 2003, if that's correct, we have to ask ourselves, could something else have happened at this summit that we don't know about? And here there's been some very interesting comments to the press out of the White House. The first thing is they stress the closed meetings that took place with no neckties, kind of like a working discussion. The meeting the next day, more than two hours with cabinet officials. There have been a series of hints that something important did happen at the summit. But if Nancy Tucker is right, unless there's a Doug Fife who writes a book about all this, uh, and even that was how many, eight years, eight, to eight years later, we're going to have to wait 30 years to find out what actually happened at the summit. Now, from the Taiwan point of view, both parties in Taiwan have said for many years they want smooth, well-managed U.S.-China relations. They don't want friction between the U.S. and China. That's that dream from the Taiwan dream, you might say, that was fulfilled. No, no discussion, almost no discussion. It's up to you to put on, add some more 
meat to the bone, almost no discussion of Taiwan. If this is correct, that nothing happened about Taiwan, then I be the opposite of Seth Cropsey. Seth Cropsey likes to criticize the Obama administration and they sort of can't get anything right. But it seems that their denial of arms sales to Taiwan, in particular the F-16s, but others as well, that gamble seems to have worked. I say gamble because Taiwan has many friends in the Congress in the United States, so you take a chance when you get a letter from 49 senators saying, please sell F-16s to Taiwan, and then you don't do it. And then the Deputy Secretary of State's confirmation is held up until another letter is provided saying, well, we'll look into this question of F-16s. And then you still don't do it. You're taking a risk. But it looks like it worked. One of the dreams of those who think of long-term cooperation with China has always been the Taiwan issue will simply go away or be swept under the rug, a little bit like the Hong Kong democracy issue, the Dalai Lama dialogue issue, and a few others. It appears from the outside that that is what, in fact, happened. So what's the message for Taiwan? Our dream has come true. The US and Chinese presidents had a summit. Taiwan was not a problem. There was apparently no friction about Taiwan. There's a brief mention, which is quite mandatory in all previous summits. Our relationship is based on the three communiques and the Taiwan Relations Act. But even the slight abbreviation was used. No further discussion. So. In my forecast of the six things that would not happen, I have to confess error. I did not put number seven, because no one told me this in Beijing. I should have had number seven. Taiwan will not be a problem between the US and China. No warnings about don't elect Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP were exchanged, according to the public comments. The US side in the past, this is my last point, in the past, the feeling on Taiwan has been, well, the Americans will never let Taiwan become too close to China. We've, we've all been told this many, many times. You Americans, there's an, uh, Taiwan friends often impute to America a geopolitical a national security interest that Taiwan shouldn't grow closer and closer to the mainland. This is, this is considered as a, matter of faith, as a matter of faith in Taiwan. Surely the Americans will stop any Taiwan president who tries to get closer and closer to Beijing. It's a topic of a very wonderful press conference with Ray Burkhart about four years ago. Ray, Ray Burkhart, the chairman of the, our relation, the chairman of the AIT, said, no, in my 30 years in the US government, I've never heard anyone say that. There is no limit. There's no American red line on how far Taiwan can go with mainland China, as long as the people of Taiwan agree to it. It's the only limit, and that's up to the people on Taiwan. So the Ray Burkhart press conference was put up on the AIT website in Taipei, and many friends in Taiwan simply didn't believe it. They said, this can't be. There must be a secret American plan to keep Taiwan away from Beijing, and somehow Ray Burkhart is lying and deceiving people by saying that there isn't. So this matter of faith continues even to today. But actually, I think Ray Burkhart is right. I think there is no geopolitical limit placed by the US government on how far Taiwan can go. In fact, 
Taiwan friends many times have written articles about, well, what about Chinese military bases on Taiwan? Or what about you know, some kind of military cooperation with Taiwan? <clears throat> Surely the Americans would put their foot down and say no to that. My personal view is that's not correct. The United States has not taken any official position that Taiwan should not cooperate with the Chinese military. So when this kind of summit takes place, it's very smooth, does not discuss the Taiwan problem, and is preceded by several years close to a moratorium on important arms sales to Taiwan. When we continue not to allow admirals and generals, nobody above the rank of colonel or navy captain is allowed to visit Taiwan. All of these gestures by us over many years is not just the Obama administration. It happened during the George W. Bush administration. It goes all the way back to Jimmy Carter. All those restraints, all those gestures toward Beijing, those who follow this policy seem to have succeeded. That's all I have to say. Well, I, I <laughs> just have to add one point to that, and that is that um, I don't like to criticize the administration. What I would like is an administration that acts in a way that does not deserve to be criticized. Well, they, in this case, <laughs> in this case, you have criticized them, but they, <coughs> they don't care. They have, a, they have a congressional support for their policy toward China. Usually there have even been resolutions before a summit that try to re say something about, you know, don't forget Taiwan. This time it didn't happen. Usually there's some spirited, there have been articles over the years, one very brilliant op-ed piece by Elliot Cohen at SICE, one time more than 15 years ago, said, you know, we should really have official relations with Taiwan. He sort of can pretend to be an outsider, he's not really a China guy, he's giving common sense, you know, we should, of course we should have generals and admirals visit Taiwan. Nothing ever happened like that. John Bolton, at his confirmation hearing, was asked, hey, you wrote this article. So you had two guys in public, both of whom worked at the State Department. John Bolton is our ambassador to the UN, his undersecretary. Elliot Cohen is counselor to Condi Rice. They both had to disavow their writings about official ties with Taiwan prior to their confirmation by the Senate. So I would say Obama is right in the center of the congressional attitudes toward Taiwan policy. And how that's going to change, I myself do not know. Mark, maybe you can answer that. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not sure if I have an answer or one that would be worth, uh, worth sort of expanding on. But first, I'd like to express appreciation to um, come here to the Hudson Institute and make a presentation on one of my favorite topics, which is Taiwan and, uh, and U.S. policy, and also relationship with, with Beijing um, in the context of the, the recent visit of the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, Chairman of the Joint Military, uh, Central Military Commission, as well as the President of the People's Republic of China. Um, I, I've been asked to talk a little bit about the recent visit of, of Xi Jinping and the implications for for Taiwan or, or U.S.-Taiwan relations. And it's, it's at, at this point in time, it's, it's a bit difficult to sort of get a grasp on what could have transpired 
um, is still somewhat, uh, somewhat early. And the starting point, of course, would be the, the statements, the public statements that, that were issued. Uh, the, the first issued by the, um, by the White House, um, in which President Obama um, de- declared commitment to the Taiwan Relations Act, um, as well as the, the three joint U.S. PRC uh, communiques. But it's also worth noting that the other statement, presumably with some officiality, was released in, in Beijing through Xinhua, the official state, um, let's say state purpose, state uh, news organization, that said that President Obama, and this is rough, I only saw the English, I didn't see the original Chinese, but President Obama also reiterated U.S. commitment to the One China policy, and the principles stated in the joint U.S.-China, the three joint uh, U.S.-China communiques, saying that his country, meaning the United States, does not support the independence of Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, and will not interfere in Hong Kong affairs. Notice the linkage, of course, that he made between Taiwan and Tibet and uh, Xinjiang, um, sort of mm-hmm. skirting over the issue that these are very separate, very, very separate, um, separate issues. So in, in short, it, it's, a bit, it, it's a bit early to sort of assess the impact on the summit I would be one to put myself in sort of the skeptical position that it would have much of an impact. If there was a decision for a sharp change in U.S. policy toward, toward Taiwan and cross-strait political situation in general, that decision, more than likely, at least based on history, uh, would have been made during the first months once the Obama administration would have come, in, uh, would have come into power, which notionally would have been uh, 2009. And history is important. As Dr. Pillsbury noted, there, there's, history is very important in terms because most major policy changes would occur at least a decision to make a policy change would have occurred in the initial months through a policy review in the administration. The last major shift we had in U.S. policy, in terms of a decision to shift U.S. policy, um, was actually probably summer of 1977, um, which laid the groundwork would eventually turn out to be the second U.S.-China communique in terms of the, the shift in, in, in diplomatic relations from the Republic of China over to the People's Republic of China. But, but since then, uh, there's been significant continuity in the way the U.S., the United States, a- approaches our official relations with the People's Republic of China and unofficial relations with, with Taiwan. But th- there are some characters in terms of the continuity. There are some aspects, um, and it's worth highlighting some of the areas of continuity. And wh- what I would do is sort of highlight what I would call four schools of thought regarding U.S. policy toward, toward Taiwan and, and cross-strait relations in general. Four schools of thought that's remained relatively consistent ever since 1979, um, and in one form or another, actually, since the 1950s and not 1949. Um, of course, right now we have, of course, the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, sort of a basis for our policy toward Taiwan, um, tempered by, of course, the three joint communiques, but bearing in mind the TRA certainly takes precedent because it's U.S. law. <clears throat> but over the last several years, there have been a growing number of opinion leaders um, in the United States. Um, that tends to fall within one of these very, very rough four categories. <laughs> Say very rough. This is inexact. This is imprecise. This is just, and, and some may argue, you know, if 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 pressed on who to place in these categories, which are, many would not necessarily associate with this particular school of thought. But I'll lay them out anyway. Um, three of these schools of thought, I, I think, do, do exist. Um, the last school of thought that I'll address doesn't really exist yet, but it could. Um, the first school of thought would be what I call the accommodationist school. It's a relatively new new school has come up, but. Um, arguably, maybe one of the first articles could have showed up in 1998 in the Foreign Affairs uh, piece that came very close to actually advocating U.S. support for the Chinese Communist Party's one-country-two-systems approach, in which 
There's one China, Taiwan is part of China, and the PRC is a sole representative of China in the international community. But it really received a, a major boost um, when a former um, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wrote an article, published an article in the, in, in, um, I believe, the Financial Times, calling for a, what, he, what he called a thoughtful review of the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, so the, I'd say the common school really has three strains within it. One being like the former vice chairman who, who calls flat out for a review of the Taiwan Relations Act, if not um, com- revoking or, or at least eliminating uh, two, the two security-related provisions of the Taiwan Relations Act. The first security-related provision being providing Taiwan with uh, necessary defense articles and services for sufficient self-defense. The second part of the TRA, which is very important but often forgotten, is um, ma- it's in the U.S. interest to m- maintain the capacity to respond to use of force and other forms of coercion. And this becomes very relevant and uh, in, in one of the strains of accommodationist thought. The uh, accommodation school, of course, received a ma- major boost, um, uh, of course, when writings that started to emerge in 20, actually 20, 2009, 2010, in various prominent journals uh, associated with the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, calling for whether it's sort of a finlandization of Taiwan um, or through a, 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 a grand bargain in which the United States um, no longer provides security assistance uh, to Taiwan, whether it's in the form of armed sales or whether it's in uh, maintaining the capacity to respond to use of force. Um, and so that, that's really an, another strain uh, in, in terms of just an outright sort of stopping the U.S. defense relationship with Taiwan. And, and the final strain, I would say, and, and here people who possibly associated with this strain, I, I think would, I'm, I'm not, I don't think they're even aware uh, of what they're, they're, they're advocating, and that's those that would that are calling for a unilateral declaratory policy of a certain, a certain military capability, which is what I would call deep interdiction, um, which is the, the, the ability to go in and, uh, and, and neutralize or affect single points of failure in the PLA's military system opposite Taiwan. Um, in, in originally, these are uh, calls calling for U.S. to abandon, for example, air-sea battle and to stop any investment or any investments in, into this sort of capability. The reason why I associate this with the accommodationist goal is arguably in order for the United States to truly maintain the capacity to respond to use of force against Taiwan, or at least force cessation of hostilities, is there needs to be multiple tools in the toolkit, of which deep interdiction is certainly certainly one. And arguably, this has been a capability the United States has had in our arsenal ever since 1950s. It's never gone away. Um, Center for Strategic Budgetary Analysis, of course, implied that this is sort of a, of a game changer, or sort of a, 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 a new way of thinking uh, in terms of Concepts formerly known as air-sea battle, um, but the reality, I think there's always been that this inherent capability. And to call for a unilateral declaratory policy when this capacity, having the capacity not necessarily used and held in reserve, um, by abandoning that unilaterally uh, is, in, in my view, a form of, uh, of, of accommodation. So this is this the, the, uh, the, the accommodation school. Um, and there... Um, and so there's a range of other terms of, uh, uh, if somebody has questions, I can sort of tr- try to address them. The second school is, is by far is by far the dominant school, and that's what I would call the status quo school uh, in terms of U.S. <laughs> policy. Um, in this day and age, the status quo school is, is perhaps um, the most vocal in opposition to some of the views of the combination of school and, and very much supportive of the current framework of the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, in, in terms of where, in terms of arms sales, judicious uh, arms sales, um, uh, who were able to articulate um, effectively the U.S. position on our, our one-China policy, um, and I will, will say uh, I think very effective in, in doing so, and, and staunchly supportive of the Taiwan Relations Act. 
um, for you know, in terms of an example, um, the uh, Nancy Tucker uh, at Bonnie Glazier uh, have done, I think, the best some of the best jobs of accountering some of the accommodations goal uh, arguments. Um, Alan Warnberg, I'd say, is is a leading leading authority on uh, in terms of U.S. One China policy and, and policy toward Taiwan, and admirably, all uh, have, have been quite um, vocal about opposing some of the accommodations school views. Um, as a general rule, the accommodation school needs to say is going to at least have tacit support or. or um, at least going to have sympathy from the Chinese Communist Party in, in Beijing. Uh, the status quo school, I, I would argue, has the implicit support of both sides of the political spectrum on Taiwan, both the KMT and, and the DPP. Um, I'm not one who, who views the DPP today as being anywhere close to what they were before in terms of some of their policies, in terms of being so-called pro-independence, uh, and has been quite uh, and, and quite uh, adamant about the idea of maintaining um, sort of this, uh, no, no, no change to the status quo. Um, the third school um, is what I would call the normalization school, for lack of a better term. And there are two, two sort of streams within the normalization school. Um, I, I would say, in terms of recent years, the leading, I, I said, one of the leading proponents, John Tasik, who's written some really very, very good pieces on um, calling for a, a shift in the U.S. one China policy. Um, this particular, on the normalization policy, we, we, those who sort of question whether the wisdom of our current one, one China policy and whether or not we could be better served by sort of adjusting our own views on, on how we deal with Taiwan. The, another aspect of the normalization school um, tends to be somewhat ambivalent or maybe indifferent on the aspects of one China policy per, per se, but, but, quite, um, but, but quite strong in advocacy for Taiwan playing a larger role in the United States' defense policy in Asia. Um, and I would tend to put myself in this category to some extent. Um, by, by calling for Taiwan to play a larger role in, what, uh, in terms of U.S. Um, strategy and what used to be called air-sea battle, or at least, um, or at least sort of assured access in, in the region. Um, J Joe Bosco, of course, has done some very good work uh, along these lines. Uh, this particular strain within what I call the normalization school tends to view uh, U.S. or Taiwan in somewhat of a, an instrumental fashion, instrumental in the sense of the role that Taiwan can play in a broader, long-term. 100-year marathon competition with um, with the Chinese Communist Party and, and China, and so and also very much emphasis on on the military uh, aspects of things. So this is sort of sort of the, the the traditional lines of lines of public advocacy that may exist in, in Washington. The, the fourth school doesn't necessarily exist today, um, but I mean there there are some traces of it. There are some traces, but. But for, um, for lack of a better term, I, I would call this the liberal realist school of thought. And I use these terms with some precision, not that well thought out. Um, it's just this, this morning over coffee. Um, I, I use the term liberal because there's, there's I mean, certainly recognizing uh, uh, the, the importance of U.S. Uh, security support to Taiwan, whether it's, whether it's on arms sales or maintaining the capacity. But, but less emphasis and more on principles. In other words, the idea that principles have a very important role in, in U.S. interests, uh, the fact that Taiwan has evolved into into a democracy, and recognizing that our current one China, and but the key aspect of this liberal realist school is the idea of that of working within the framework of the U.S. one China policy. Uh, the most prominent person that I think may have outlined one of the most art in terms of articulating one of the best arguments actually would be uh, John Bolton, all the way back in 1999-2000, in a piece that he did for American in uh, Enterprise Institute that said moving toward a more normal relationship with the ROC, the people, the Republic of China, would not in any form or fashion go outside of our one-China policy, that our one-China policy 
he didn't use these words, but generally is, is broad enough and flexible enough to drive an aircraft carrier through. Um, in the sense that it's possible that that Taiwan, in objective reality, does exist as an independent sovereign state, ROC, and there's really nothing that we, that in terms of limits, bearing in mind that between 1972 and 1979, we had a one-China policy. We also had an embassy in Taipei. We had a formal liaison uh, office, uh, State Department uh, diplomatic representative <laughs> office in Beijing. We had two presidential levels, visits to Beijing. We had one vice president level visit to, to Taipei. So it, it's recognizing sort of the possibilities within our one China framework about what could be done gradually. For lack of a better term, one can call this view either liberal realist or perhaps one China, U.S. one China, two governments uh, uh, approach. I use the term liberal, of course, to represent the principal aspects of looking at the value of Taiwan as having intrinsic value and not necessarily instrumental value. I use the term realist because, and not in the sort of the, the, the um, you know, that defensive realist or the offensive realist perspective, but use the, the realist is that in this school, it would recognize objective reality. It would recognize that, our, that one China policy is, is a constructed narrative. Um, it can be, can be useful as long as people recognize that it is a constructed narrative uh, and there's flexibility within that. I use the term realist to say objective reality, which is. And this is a, a strain that runs through Taiwan policy uh, all the way back to Zheng Jingguo, Li Donghui, Chen Shui-bian, and Ma Yingzhou, which is the objective reality is that Taiwan, under its current Republic of China constitutional framework, exists as an independent sovereign state. Saying the word state, of course, is politically incorrect, so one could say government um, as an opposing term. This strain of thinking in terms of U.S. policy, when you look through the histories, the uh, FRUS, the Foreign Relations the United States History, there has been a strength in U.S. policy to, to think that it's, it makes sense to have no, fairly normal relations with governments that are legitimate. And this was a strain that, that, that actually was all the way up to 1971. All the way to 1977 was always an option in U.S. policy about having fairly normal relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Within this liberal realist school, there, there could be two, two streams. Um, one stream would be under the view in terms of in order to be able to maintain a broader U.S. US one-China policy in terms of approach, having a more normal relationship, uh, that it, it's sort of a multilateral approach in which if Beijing would just perhaps come up with a more creative approach to just one-China policy, for example, um, use of the term shared sovereignty uh, in terms of trying to sort of appeal to Beijing to adopt sort of this concept of shared sovereignty, that perhaps it would provide more room for the US policy to, to, to adjust accordingly. Or there, there's been some arguments, for example, that would advocate you know, calling upon the the, uh, the, um, the DPP to come up with some sort of a, uh, uh, not necessarily 92 consensus, but at least some kind of a rough, very, very notional one-shot of, uh, framework. I, I would not necessarily, I don't, wouldn't associate myself with this strain of the liberal realist school, but there is another strain that believes that the U.S. could do things unilaterally uh, to create more running room within our uh, one-shot policy without mm -hmm. asking Beijing to change their views, which, of course, would be somewhat... Difficult, or, or even trying to insert yourself in the Thomas political uh, process, and that much could be done on the U.S. side to gradually rethink what is in the realm of possibility with, uh, with in relations with Taiwan, the Republic of China, in a way that sort of breaks out of this framework of a reviewing one-China policy as being a zero-sum game. Um, so, with that, uh, I'll close here uh, and make a few considerations, thoughts of, of, in terms of what going forward. I would argue, first of all, what needs to be done, uh, or what could be worth considering here in the Washington area or anywhere in the United States, would be 
what I would call a national conference on the future of U.S.-Taiwan relations. I use this term purposely. One of the most significant turning points in U.S. relations with the PRC was, uh, took place in April of 1965 with the National Conference on U.S.-China Relations, National Conference on China, that brought together individuals all the way from various communities uh, together in one room to be able to air their views and air, air their opinions. That took place in Washington, D.C. And here, a National Conference on uh, U.S.-Taiwan Relations would bring representatives to be able to e- explain thoughts associated with each one of these four schools, mm-hmm. schools of thinking. Um, all the way from, you know, let the accommodation school have their day. They can advocate in favor of getting rid of the Taiwan Relations Act or that. That can be balanced, of course, by uh, those who advocate the status quo policy, those who advocate uh, in, in favor of sort of a real look at the one China policy in general, uh, as opposed to others who could look at ways in which the United States could move toward a more normal relationship, not too different from what we had in the, between 1972 and 1979. So I'll throw that out as the first. Second, related to this, could be what's really needed is the formation, eventually, of something what I would call a National Committee on U.S.-Taiwan Relations. There's a National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Why isn't there a National Committee on U.S.-Taiwan Relations? Again, something that sort of brings in represent, representatives from each of these four schools of thought. Um, the third, um, I would say the more near term, definitely bear in mind what arms sales are. They're not just for Taiwan's defense, but uh, arms sales, particularly those requiring congressional notifications, are the most visible manifestation of Taiwan's sovereign status today. The most visible manifestation of the relevance of the Taiwan Relations Act. I would argue moving, moving with haste, um, now that Xi Jinping is, is uh, I guess, I don't know if he's leaving today out of New York City, but um, move forward with haste on congressional notifications that may exist and sitting on the table. Um, particularly the transfer of PFG2 destroyers, which if, they're, if that notification does not go through and letter offer and acceptance signed fairly soon, we're going to be asking Taiwan taxpayers to be paying a lot more than they would otherwise. I think this is very important, at a minimum, this one. If not, there's some other things on, on, uh, on the table that really need to, be, need to be moved forward. And finally, I would advocate, this is one of my favorite subjects, um, but related to this, which falls in some of the arms sales category, but not necessarily, and I would advocate somehow promulgating or communication, communicating with U.S. industry some kind of a blanket marketing uh, license to be able to sort of define the parameters of what U.S. industry can do to assist Taiwan in its development of diesel electric submarines. This, um, one of the important things in policy is maintaining consistency and maintaining um, sort of consistency in policy positions. President Bush, in April, on April 21st, 2001, committed to assist Taiwan in its acquisition of diesel electric submarines. In my view, that should be adhered to. Um, and it's time, right now, Taiwan has made a major change uh, in terms of its policy on these electric submarines, in terms of uh, agreeing and seeing the, the wisdom in approaching this from an indigenous uh, development perspective. And it needs to be uh, supported in full. Blanket marketing license defining the parameters with um, the, sec- the Secretary of Navy report to Congress um, on considerations for export controls on, on submarines could be somewhat of a baseline. This was issued in 1992. It's fairly clear on some of the obvious uh, uh, conditions in maintaining uh, attention to U.S. Um, export control uh, interests. But uh, also, uh, support refurbishment of Taiwan's existing submarines, guppies, if they're even still uh, operational. In particular, Sea Dragon submarines. It makes all the sense in the world to, uh, to refurbish these, these systems. There's been precedent. Uh, there's been um, submarine launch harpoons that have been approved. Um, and there's uh, other aspects of this, and so should support uh, Taiwan in its, um, uh, in its refurbishment of existing submarines. Um, there should also be, if Taiwan requests it, um, 
support, even if through foreign military channels, of issues that could help Taiwan to manage a very, very complex program, uh, program management services, uh, for example. I think it would be very important in the role the United States can play. Not too different from what we did with the PFG2 program back in the 19, uh, 1990s, where we have an um, organization that's set up to uh, assist on program management, as well as um, uh, systems engineering services. Bearing in mind that I, I'm not sure if there are many restraints on European uh, vendors uh, supporting in terms of consulting contracts. Um, and at a minimum, the United States should be treated uh, equally, given with certain technical tech transfer parameters. So with that, I'll turn it uh, back over to the moderator. Thank you, Mark. Uh, we'll take in suggestions. Begin. Well, good afternoon. And thank you very much to Seth Cropsey and Michael Pillsbury for the invitation to be here. It is an absolute privilege to be back at the Hudson Institute. Uh, I thought I might say a few words about the future of Taiwan's defense and what this summit may or may not mean for that. Now, I would argue that the future of Taiwan's defense is probably the most critical and enduring strategic challenge facing Americans, American diplomats and security professionals. Why? Because no other democratic country in the world, no other close U.S. security partner faces a security environment, a defense environment as stressful as Taiwan's. And no other flashpoint on the planet that you can point to is as likely to bring the world's two strongest countries to war. So we ignore it at our peril. We're not talking about a border dispute, right? We're not talking about a terrorist threat. We're not talking about hybrid warfare or a gray zone threat. What is at stake is nothing less than the continued freedom of 23 million Taiwanese citizens. That's what's at stake. Taiwan faces an existential threat. Over the past 30 years, the Chinese Communist Party has harnessed very successfully the talents and the treasures of 1.3 billion people to make China stronger. And in recent years, we've seen China create a military machine that could possibly be powerful enough to challenge the United States and the world order that we lead. That's something I think that we need to think about. And we need to realize that the PLA's number one mission is the invasion of Taiwan, according to the PLA's own statements on this issue. That's what drives them. Number two mission is to prepare to deter, delay, or disrupt U.S. efforts to aid Taiwan, if needs be. So with that as background, what will the world look like 30 years from now? As a young analyst, that's something I often ponder. Will China continue to grow in power and ambition? Will China somehow stagnate? Will it run out of steam and lash out at its neighbors? Or will China collapse? We don't know. But whatever it does, Taiwan's national life will be at risk as long as the Chinese Communist Party has a complete monopoly, has that total grip on political power in Beijing. Now, Chairman Xi Jinping, who was just here a few days ago, and I call him Chairman Xi Jinping, or General Secretary Xi Jinping, not President, because 
That's what he's referred to, of course, in Chinese. It's meaningful in Chinese. He's not an elected official. He's not equal to President Obama, in my view. So Chairman Xi Jinping, who was just here in Washington, D.C., said nothing about Taiwan during his visit. Now, you may have seen an interview he gave with the Wall Street Journal just before the visit. If you cut and paste it and put it in 12-point font, that interview is almost 16 pages long. It's an incredibly detailed mm -hmm. interview. Didn't say a word about Taiwan. Now, I would argue that's telling, that this is a concerted effort to lull Americans into a sense of complacency to make us forget or ignore, through optimism or ignorance, China's true strategic intentions. Now, after 30 years, many American politicians and scholars and government officials continue to fall into the trap of believing that any day now, China is going to change for the positive, even when there's no solid evidence to back that assertion. And I think it can be fairly charged that the U.S. China watching, the China watching community here in the United States has been surprised by the trajectory of China, especially in recent years. Dr. Pillsbury lays this out very well in his book, The 100-Year Marathon, that our community, True. those of us True. that speak and read Chinese and try to follow what's going on in China, we have been surprised again and again that more often than not, we have failed to accurately predict what China was capable of doing and what it would do. That our track record, on balance, is a fairly miserable one. So when we think about Taiwan's defense, when we imagine new concepts and strategies to that end in the future, I would submit that we need to do so with a strong dose of humility. Now, the first step towards a sound defense policy, of course, is a clear recognition of the threat. And then you can work through various scenarios facing you. Now, worst case military scenarios are important, of course, but we should prepare for a whole range of possibilities. I would argue that it's lazy analysis to assume, for example, that in a war, Taiwan's Air Force and Navy would be lost in the first few days of conflict. And so the only fight that we need to think about or prepare for is the one that would occur off of Taiwan shores or beaches, or in the worst case scenario, the suburbs of Taipei. Now, one of the biggest problems, and perhaps one of the reasons for this, is that not enough Chinese linguists and China specialists here in Washington and across the country, not enough focus on the defense of Taiwan. In fact, most ignore it altogether. Most have forgotten about it altogether over the past seven or eight years. And making matters worse, those of us that do focus on it sometimes have highly politicized views. Those that support the KMT, for example, tend to look at the DPP as the real threat. And those that support the DPP tend to view the KMT as the true enemy. Now, China thrives in this environment. It is working hard every day to drive wedges between us. And sometimes it's successful. The United States has not sold Taiwan F-16 fighters. We've not sold Taiwan Abrams tanks. And as Mark pointed out, we've not sold Taiwan submarines. We've not helped Taiwan acquire diesel electric submarines, despite committing to do so a very long time ago. Now, this 
four-year freeze on arms sales that we've seen, this did not happen in a vacuum. Our community has been divided. And instead of working together in a united fashion against a common enemy, which is logically what people do when you're facing uh, a common challenge, uh, we've just worked against each other. Now let's be clear. No other country is going to help Taiwan if the United States does not. And Taiwan cannot build the advanced weapon systems it needs indigenously without bankrupting itself and forfeiting its long-term security. It's a dangerous myth, I think, that Taiwan should go domestic and build all of its own weapon systems in-house. My view is that whenever the PLA introduces a new capability, the United States should sell Taiwan or otherwise help Taiwan acquire a better capability or at least something equivalent. New stealth fighters in China should be met with new Taiwanese stealth fighters. New Chinese submarines should be met with new Taiwanese submarines, and so on. What I'm suggesting, however, is not a strategy of winning a competition for numbers. Taiwan cannot outspend China. Nor should we ever expect Taipei to raise its defense budget to a level higher than that preferred by the citizens of Taiwan, the, the voters. However, small to medium-sized batches of American cutting-edge capabilities are easily within Taiwan's grasp in terms of the ability to finance. What I'm suggesting is thinking strategically and not tactically about U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. Quality can and does defeat quantity. And it's not just about weapons platforms. One U.S. Navy ship visit to Taiwan would have the same impact on Taiwan's defense, I would argue, as an entire squadron of new fighter planes. One PACOM commander or Undersecretary of Defense for Policy visit to Taiwan, preferably to combine them into a visit together, that would have the same impact on, on Taiwan's defense, I would argue, as a whole new fleet of diesel submarines in Taiwan's inventory. One call from the White House to the presidential office in Taipei, one phone call, would have the same impact as a dozen new missile defense launchers. Some of our best weapons are diplomatic ones. And we often forget that. Now, both President Obama and President Ma, in my view, are peacemakers. They both have dedicated their administrations to trying to improve relations with China. Now, this is a worthy goal and one that is befitting our great, generous democracies. But their efforts at accommodating and assuring China have been rejected. It is clear that China continues to view our countries as enemies. And no matter what we do, that will not change as long as the Communist Party is in power. Our efforts and our goodwill are taken for signs of weakness. So unfortunately, we are now in a position where neither bold new arms sales 
nor far-reaching diplomatic initiatives, which Mark described, are being considered. We're not considering either of them. Neither is on the table. What little Washington and Taipei are doing appears to be constrained by fear. And it's the fear of this unknown Beijing response, the potential Beijing response, which seems limitless on a dark horizon in our minds. It's fear, not logic, that are driving a lot of policy decisions. We are afraid, I think, to even imagine what could be accomplished by a stronger U.S.-Taiwan relationship. Now, I don't know what the future of U.S.-Taiwan defense and security relations will be. I don't know what strategy, what concepts, or what forms of cooperation would be best. But I have some ideas, and I know many of you do as well. Thirty years from now, I really hope that when we look back, we don't look back with regret and wonder whether a stronger approach could have saved the peace that we today see slipping away in Asia. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Uh, we'll, uh, we have some time for questions, um, but I would like to ask the panel the first question. And I think, Ian, that your uh, observation about fear is uh, well-grounded. So um, what I'd like to ask the panel is, what would China do if, for example, President Obama picked up the phone and called President Ma? What would China do if we uh, rejiggered the export controls to allow the export of technology needed for submarines. Um, what should we expect um, if the if Admiral Harris hops on his plane and uh, lands in Taipei tomorrow afternoon? What's, what, what do you think? I think that our fears are ungrounded, and I think that they limit our creativity, that we think, again, that the possibilities are endless, that China's power, its influence, and its money, its future is limitless. And so generally, that's a fantastic question. It's one that we generally don't even want to ask. In reality, we have several good historical examples that we could look to, including very recent ones. If you would have asked somebody a year ago, what would happen if Marine Corps F-18s were suddenly to show up at Tainan Air Base, people would have absolutely pulled their hair out and they would have trembled in trepidation. But we have a great example. It happened and the reaction was minimal. We had a great example in 2011 before the last arms sale four years ago, over four years ago now when people thought, oh my goodness, what will happen if we have another large multi-billion dollar package? Well, we found out, didn't we? Very little. There were a lot of empty threats. There was a lot of posturing. But the end result was very little. And so I would argue that if we're logical about it, if we look at the historical record, and we think through what our own national interests are, 
And those are clear, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. What I worry about is that by limiting Taiwan's ability to access high quality American defense articles and services, we are actually creating a situation where the balance shifts in China's favor. And once you create an imbalance in the world like that, especially at a sensitive flashpoint, what you're doing is you're actually encouraging conflict to happen. The last thing you ever want to do is create an imbalance. And unfortunately, I worry that that's what we're doing. And so uh, I would argue that it is in our national interest to do the type of things that, that Mark uh, offered, to do some of the things that I hinted at in terms of high-level visits, including ship visits, including uh, warfighter visits, policymaker visits, and others, phone calls, that none of these things uh, are beyond our possibility, and none of the potential consequences would be beyond our ability to bear. Uh, well, you mentioned the, the two things. One would be a, a phone call from President Obama to President Mainja, and the other one being the submarine in terms of technical assistance. Uh, two somewhat separate issues, but um, so if President Obama picked up a cell phone, made a phone call to Mainja's cell phone, and said, hey, what's shaking? Um, How's, how's it going today? How's it hanging? Uh, how's wife and kids and things like that? It, it, it's hard to conceive of Beijing taking. Now, Beijing, of course, would interpret this as being, you know, connoting some sort of officiality and, and by our relations. But come on, using the cell phone just to say, "Hey, how's it going?" Um, it, it's, it's unreasonable. It gets to the point of what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. Uh, in general, Beijing's policies today toward Taiwan are, might be just unreasonable. Um, I would quote Representative Randy Forbes recently. If you didn't see what his one of his questions that he asked President Obama to ask of in, in during his dinner meeting with Xi Jinping was something to the effect of um, that uh, the, the objective reality, the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. And this is Representative Forbes, the status quo in the Taiwan Strait is the existence of two legitimate governments. Now, who, who can argue with that? It's true. The status quo in the Taiwan Strait is the existence of two legitimate governments. One, uh, Taiwan. Are the Republic of China, <clears throat> liberal democracy, People's Republic of China, is a um, is a state controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, single single party state, um, and then it goes on to say that uh, applying this is him making a recommendation to President Obama to ask Xi Jinping, applying your one country two systems framework to U.S. Taiwan relations, how can you claim the right to represent twenty three million? People who enjoy popular sovereignty. Now, and, and, and of course, uh, to me, it's a decent, decent question. I'm sure we can. It, it doesn't make a sense. It's just not Beijing's approach. Is it reasonable? So, what would Beijing do? Okay, worst case scenario, they could lob missiles. Um, it, it's sort of a, they could seize an offshore island. But really, this is this is a U.S. issue. And so, how would they punish the United States? Um, uh, maybe they could. Maybe they could freeze the military to military relationship. Um, or maybe they could punish U.S. defense companies, but we're talking about a phone call. So, um, on the I mean, there, there's arranging. They could do a demarche. They could withdraw an ambassador. They could downgrade relations to a, sort of one headed by a deputy chief of mission or something. And there's there's all kinds of things that they they could do and have done in the past. Uh, on the uh, tech transfer issue, um, we did a study in 2011. I forgot the year 2011, 2012, by looking at the historical record on on Beijing's reactions to U.S. arms sales. As a general rule, um, they will, 
every single announcement, whether it's under the congressional notifications come in two forms. One is under the, uh, paragraph 36B, which is on notifications on arms sales through FMS channels of anything above 50 million. The other one is a, a, a 36B or 36C, which is direct commercial sale. What we're talking about here is a DCS. There's no detail in that congressional notification. In general, there's just a, a rough announcement. The um, and this is a, a private. This is U.S. A company. This this is uh, this is a, a, a industry. It, it, it's a com- it's in some ways a, a commercial uh, issue. It, it's consistent with the nature of our unofficial relations with Taiwan, um, and they really wouldn't have much grounds to, to stand on. They have done demarches on uh, direct commercial sale programs before, but generally, what Beijing is really concerned about. I don't think they're that concerned. I mean, they're concerned about certain military aspects, but it's not the military aspect of arms sales or in this case, submarine transfer, that, that really matters in my view to Beijing. It's the political legitimacy that arms sales represent. It's, it, it's notifying to Congress uh, and, and to announce an arms sale in a manner that actually belies or undercuts the PRC's stated profession, of which there's one China, Taiwan's part of China, and, and theoretically, if we were an arms sale to a province of China, then we should go through Beijing. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to something like this, if it's, if it's a DCS, a t- transfer licensing, or consulting or program management services, there's really not much of a leg to stand on. I don't know why all the hand-wringing. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I, I think there, there's a lot of self-deterring going on, particularly in the case in which it's a DCS. It, it's a tech transfer program. It's a consulting program. It doesn't – there, there's – arm sales are important, FMS, but this is something that's just difficult to understand why – I can see the tech transfer concerns, mm-hmm. export control concerns on U.S. technology, submarines um, – there are some that argue that submarines. I mean, could, I mean, there, there's different arguments, but the one about fearing Beijing's reaction to me is is the, the one that's void of, in my view, legitimate concern. And then the follow-on question, of course, is what would the third order effect be? So, if Beijing did something to us to punish us for doing what's in our national interest vis-a-vis Taiwan, then what would we do in response to that? So, for example, if uh, sanctions were levied against a major U.S. industry as a result of uh, an arms sale, for example, uh, or if uh, they pulled their ambassador or cut the mill-to-mill relationship um, because we sent a high-level U.S. official or a group of high-level U.S. officials uh, to Taiwan, or because President Obama made a phone call, then you can think about what the American reaction might be. You can think about how over 300 million Americans who probably didn't think that much about Taiwan in their day-to-day lives would suddenly be reading about something that would seem very unreasonable from their perspective and that could very quickly sour and color their views of China and the relationship with China and cause them to question some of the fundamental assumptions, I would argue myths, that uh, undergird the U.S.-China relationship. And so the third order effects are important as well. It's not just what Beijing could do to us. It's also what our natural response as a country would be uh, in that unreasonable situation. Oh, and by the way, I have to point out, Mark, that um, a former Assistant Secretary of Defense, Richard Pearl, used to refer to demarches as demarshmallows, um, as far as the seriousness of these and diplomatic niceties are concerned. Michael? Uh, I would answer your question in two ways. First of all, imagine a marriage of 40 years in which I'm referring now to arrangements that Henry Kissinger first made about Taiwan 
from the very beginning of his trip to Beijing in 1971. In fact, we can personalize it. Imagine it's you. You're married 40 years, and you call your wife and say, I'm not coming home tonight, but I'll be home tomorrow because I'm going to go sleep with my old girlfriend. <laughs> and your question really is, well, what would she do? And I would submit, to use one of Mark Stokes's words, you're self-deterred. You know there will be some kind of consequence. You can't be quite sure what it is. But because the context is you're breaking at least an implied commitment that you will not sleep with your old girlfriend, even for one night, the reaction could be quite strong. And also, any consultation you would have with your male friends, where you, you bring this up, I'm thinking about, you know, this action, what do you think my wife will do? I think most of your male friends would say, Seth, you really don't want to find out. <laughs> but secondly, back to Mark's four schools, all four of these schools, with the possible exception of the fourth school that doesn't fully exist yet, but three and a half schools would totally block this idea before it even reached the president's desk. So what seems to outsiders like common sense, why can't President Obama, why can't President George W. Bush telephone Taiwan's president? Most people don't even know that doesn't, that's totally forbidden. Why can't Pacific Command, not just the commander himself, as Ian mentioned, why can't even one admiral or one general visit? Why can't ship visits take place? Or why can't US Air Force aircraft visit Taiwan? Why is there no what is called interoperability? This was tried inside, by the way, Mark's four schools all seem to involve former government officials. So you can probably conclude indirectly what Mark is saying. These four schools of thought seem to exist inside the US government. But the fifth school, or the aggressive version of the fourth school, to test the limits of officiality this hasn't been tried yet. So there's another issue, which is whether Taiwan would accept these generous gestures. Because you have to have advanced notification. You can't just sail in with a US Navy ship. So in Taiwan's political system, they might begin a discussion. Well, is this a good idea or not? And as soon as Beijing finds out that the Americans and some people in Taiwan are thinking this kind of thing. You read Mark Stokes's brilliant writings on China's influence operations. As soon as Beijing finds out something like this is being considered, they would take, wouldn't you say, fairly serious measures? I would use the term active measures. Active measures. Bear in mind that China's system is adopted from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. But what remains to be done, and I suspect Ian would support this, most people outside the narrow China-Taiwan community do not know the nature of U.S.-Taiwan relations. For all they know, President Obama and President Ma talk on the phone all the time. They simply do not know. Or U.S. Navy ships don't visit Taiwan since 1978. Nobody knows that. And the big world outside. So even to begin to discuss these subjects, has a very healthy impact on what Mark Stokes referred to as the four schools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is where Elliot Cohen's op-ed piece 15 years ago uh, triggered a kind of very slow motion debate in the China field. 
are these arrangements and commitments that are not public, that limit our association with Taiwan, that have us essentially say Taiwan is not a legitimate government, not a legitimate government. It is local authorities of an unspecified larger body. If that is not examined, and I, the Congress has never examined this, con congressional delegations that visit Taiwan exempt themselves from the rules. They go in and see the president of Taiwan. They call him Mr. President. US Air Force aircraft. They come on US Air Force aircraft that usually has to go elsewhere. <laughs> Sometimes. Hopefully changed. Yeah. So members of Congress tend to have the illusion Maybe that's too strong a word. The impression that Taiwan is a country. It has flags. We go in to see the president. There's a flag there. We have what seems to be an embassy. The guy comes with us. He's sort of from the State Department on leave. So I have been an eyewitness to very intelligent senators and congressmen having the impression that we do have normal relations with Taiwan. And that probably there are Navy ship visits going on all the time. We just, we're just too busy to, to not go down to the, to the dock and see one when we're in the country. So to raise this subject itself today in this panel is a historic moment. And it's part of the context of Mark Stokes saying, look, these four schools of thought exist. They don't seem to debate each other very much. Why don't we have a national conference on US-Taiwan relations? Why, don't we, why isn't there a national council on U.S.-Taiwan relations? Why do academics not address all this? Why aren't there Freedom of Information Act requests for the documents on officiality and the limits? Why can't we have interoperability, to use a big word, interoperability between the Defense Department and Taiwan's armed forces? These are very big issues in our little China field that the outside world so far has paid no mm -hmm. attention to. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to, I think we're trying to say today, look, there's a successful summit in which Taiwan did not come up. Is this the time now to think about improving, improving U.S.-Taiwan relations, strengthening deterrence in case there is something possible involving the use of force that Beijing never ruled out? Is this the time to rethink U.S.-Taiwan relations. That's what all three of us seem to be saying. Although I'm the more, I'm the softest of the three of us, right? I'm in the fourth school that hasn't been formed yet. Uh, are there what questions would your wife, the you didn't answer my question. What would your wife do then? <laughs> this is a, uh, a mixed audience, so I, I can't really describe But again, it. as good of a metaphor as that is, and it's a good one, we're not married to China. Right? You could well, argue some, that we're no, married to our school, allies, no, our I, treaty allies. The accommodation allies. to school, I think, does think we're married to China. I think they may, <laughs> but I think they're wrong. That uh, we're actually married, you could say, we're committed fully uh, in a sacred way to our allies, to Japan, for example, to the Philippines, to Thailand, to the UK. That's a marriage. That's what a marriage looks like. Our relationship with China is, is very different than that. And so to say that, that China is our wife and Taiwan is our girlfriend, I think, uh, <laughs> it does help crystallize the thought, but it's, it doesn't fully capture the relationship. Because again, it's not, it's not a legal, uh, actually we true. have a legal commitment to Taiwan. All true, we do not have a legal commitment to China. This wasn't my metaphor. 
I actually got this from a PLA general. He said, Taiwan should even make what a shout hi tai. Woman should need a food, eh? We are your real wife. Taiwan is just maybe your mistress. He would, maybe he would like it to be that way. <laughs> well, in any case, my wife would not be pleased. Now, um, uh, would she punish you? <laughs> I'm sorry. Would she punish you? Uh, I think so. <laughs> Hi, Nadia Chao with the Liberty Times. Uh, two questions. First one, you uh, some of the panelists just mentioned uh, Obama government seems to have the uh, Congress support uh, on arms sales on Taiwan because it hasn't been going on for four years, and uh, we don't really see a lot of action from the Congress. And yesterday, uh, you know, the conference report for the uh, 2016 uh, defense authorization bill basically uh, killed all the amendments uh, inviting Taiwan to join the uh, red flag uh, exercise or ring pack or, you know, uh, enhance Taiwan's unsymmetric capability. So what kind of signal do you think this is sent to Taiwan? And the second question, um, a lot of people mentioned from Xi Jinping's recent visit, uh, they talk a lot about the strategic future or the structure in Asia by these two countries. Uh, I just wonder, have you seen, you know, from the fact sheet they released or the joint statement, there's any hint of what kind of strategic structure they are, you know, projecting and how Taiwan fit in in this new structure? Thank you. Nadia, is it okay if Seth takes several questions and then the panel answers all the questions at once? It's already 1.30. Yeah, we, have, we don't have time for a lot of questions. And if uh, the answers are long, then we'll have time for fewer. Yeah. So. Just very quickly, on the, um, on the National Defense Authorization Act, I, I, I'm not privy to, to what actually went on inside, but... I would know that there's a precedent for legislation being tabled but not necessarily going through, and that's in um, 1990, maybe uh, 1998, 99, 2000 timeframe, what's called the Taiwan Security Enhancement Act. Uh, that was that was tabled. It never went through, but it, it was it, it it served an important role, in at least putting a marker down on what could be executed should there be continued hesitation on releasing systems and capabilities in which there was a legitimate legitimate uh, requirement for. Um, and so in, in this case, because it didn't necessarily make, you know, come out of conference, um, it, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that it reflects sort of a lack of support within Congress. I think Congress has been fairly clear on issues such as submarines um, and other aspects of, um, of Taiwan defense. Um, and of course, they're, they're also been clear about Taiwan's at least getting an observer status on uh, on, on RIMPAC. Um, my, my impression, though, is that there's considerable support within, within Congress for Taiwan. I would not automatically assume that if it didn't show up, uh, it wouldn't uh, be there. Um, in terms of our new major country relations, what's, what's a ter buzzword, term of art? Um, I, I'm sure Beijing has, has their view on what, what, what that is. Bear in mind the use of that term. And what, my, my impression, what they're really trying to do is gain legitimacy, trying to sort of label them, being, being labeled <coughs> by... Um, Policymakers in Washington, as, a, as they try to get power, I guess that term, um, and that certainly has significant co connotations. Um, you know, what that means, uh, it, it's it's not clear, um, and, and still yet to be seen. 
Let's take a question from the back. Oh, good. Sorry. Um, hey, I'm Lieutenant Murphy yeah. from uh, OBNAV staff. I'll try and be brief, but there's a lot of background to it. So with the si South China Sea, along with our relationship with Taiwan, it seems the only action we've taken is meeting with Xi Jinping and not addressing any of the major issues that we've seen. And Dr. Pillsbury, I know in your book, uh, you make it very clear, and we continue to see the trend that follows with your predictions of the 100-year marathon and everything that goes into that. If we were to take a stance right now, whether it be you know a strong role in Taiwan or a you know coming with challenging the 12 nautical mile limits of the islands in the South China Sea, any number of those things, do you think that would be effective in forcing China to actually sh show their cards early, and uh, you know and and force them to kind of say, hey, this is what our true plan is? Because I know in your book you mentioned that. Um, you know, they're, they're just now starting to mention that the 100-year marathon is a true thing, as if mm -hmm. it's already too late. And, but at the same time, we see that uh, the chairman has, uh, has continued to play the lamb, which means that it seems he's not really ready to go ahead and show his cards and say outright, this is China's goals. Do you think that, uh, that we might be able to force their hand a little bit if we did take a strong strategic stance in that case? Well, your question has a lot of assumptions built in, which I tend to agree with. But again, I think the big event of the day is Mark Stokes laying out the four schools of thought. He probably means to say that schools one and two dominate with the help of school three. School two dominates. Accommodation is rapidly moving forward because there's school three okay. and four still aren't, should be much more assertive in order to maintain status quo. So our internal balance of power in Washington, I think I agree with what Mark Stokes said. Our internal balance of power in Washington is still at the point where a lot of ideas are simply seen, such as challenging 12-mile limit around some of these features. They're simply seen as the thinking of a madman by the mainstream school. If you're working in J5, I'm quite familiar with J5 in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They are all uniformed officers, and they go to think tank meetings. They go to Carnegie and Brookings in particular. And they absorb their worldview from Carnegie and Brookings. They're deeply impressed when a former NSC staffer, I think one of the foreign affairs articles you mentioned calling for a moratorium, one was a former NSC staffer who wrote that, Doug Paul. One was a former ambassador to Saudi Arabia and assistant secretary of defense, Chas Freeman. He called for a moratorium. Uh, a vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is, one of the, is the one who called for the rethink of, Taiwan, of the Taiwan Relations Act. This is a standing law of the United States that passed by a veto-proof majority in 1979. Former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wants it reviewed. And he's not the only one. There's quite a few retired admirals and generals. Uh, I can think of one admiral in particular who's quite adamant in what Mark Stokes is calling the accommodationist school. So when you raise, when we raise these ideas today, we have to be very clear that we can hide behind Seth Cropsey and say, well, Seth Cropsey made us do this and hope that he gets demonized by both Beijing and the mainstream view in Washington. But these are dangerous ideas. 
that we're putting forward. And Mark Stokes has been very careful to portray the balance of power in Washington. So I frankly would be stunned if the former two chairmen penetrated the 12-mile limit of these features in the South China Sea. I'd be stunned. But the beauty of Washington is how views evolve over time. And what was crazy in 1969, intelligence relationships with China, arms sales to China by President Reagan. That would be madness in 69. Even in 71, 72, all of a sudden you open your paper. Actually, it's open. It's on the front page. Secretary of State Haig is in Beijing, June 81. We're going to sell lethal weapons to China. So what you're hearing today is a historic moment when some think tank scholars are thinking aloud, can we test the limits of officiality? But we're also hinting that the public and the Congress do not even know what the limits of officiality are. I've had senators say to me, we can't have generals and admirals visit Taiwan. Why the hell not? Who did that? And the answer is classified. When it was done, when it was done, how it was negotiated, if it even was negotiated, all that has never been provided to our Congress. They simply don't know all these arrangements and, and self-deterred uh, measures. Can I get a very quick in it? Very quick. Um, first of all, um, actually, just in, in somewhat of defense for, with Doug Ball, he, he actually did advocate for F-16, so I wouldn't necessarily put him in the same sort of accommodationist uh, uh, schools. I'm just um, referring to his article calling for a moratorium on major arms sales for five years. That's in writing, uh, in foreign uh, affairs. Okay, I, I need to go back. Um, the, the four schools of thought are, are still being developed. Um, but very quick on the South China Sea issue. Let, let's apply that four school of thought to the South China Sea. It, it, it's worth remembering that the, that the claims, uh, whatever term, nine-dash nine line, U-shaped line in the South China Sea, that that claim actually predates the establishment of the PRC. It goes back uh, many years to, to the Republic of China. Um, now, from Beijing's perspective, the Republic of China ceased to exist as a legitimate government in 1949, so therefore they inherited all the claims. If one were to apply, let's say, for example, this fourth school of thought, which is a much broader view of one China, bearing in mind that the, the claims today within, for the ROC and, and the PRC overlap to, to, to some extent, and I believe the DPP is still somewhat consistent with uh, the KMT, um, then why... One argument could be that if one wanted to help really look at some of the historical issues or some of the issues with the, the, the political aspects of the claims itself, why wouldn't you do a lot more to work with the ROC on identifying some of the issues? If the PRC, in, the, in their view of their one China is not being all that cooperative, then why not try somebody else's perspective? And I want to highlight that President Ma did, did um, propose uh, uh, sort of some, some considerations on, on, um, in terms of thinking about issues in the South China Sea that would be worth paying attention to, in my view, warrant a lot more attention um, in terms of public uh, support at the official level. All right, we have time for one more question. And there's a young lady in the back of the room there. And um, thank you. I'm Jane, currently working at Pan American Development Foundation as a fellow. I just wonder, and what would you suggest to the new administration of Taiwan, no matter which candidate wins, um, in order to achieve the peace and stability in, in Asia? Thank you. Let Ian answer for me. Well, I would say that the number one thing that Taiwan needs to do is to continue to invest heavily 
in its relationship with the United States. That China has already shown its hand, in a sense, that has had a, a beautiful window of opportunity for the past seven years, both in Washington and in Taipei, to really improve the cross-strait relationship. And it's failed that the desire for any form of, of um, union or uh, annexation or unification, however you think of it, uh, that the voters of Taiwan have, have outright rejected that. And it's clear in all polling data that we see that it has never been more unpopular today than, than any point in history than it is today. So China has really failed. It's, it's Taiwan policy has, has been a real failure. And so I think it's time for Taiwan to double down or to pivot back, if you will, on the United States, which is its only true, uh, I would argue, its only true ally, its only true friend uh, in the world. And of course, it's uh, the number one protector, not only of Taiwan, but of the world order that allows democracies to, to really thrive. And of course, we know what the alternative to that is. I just have a short answer that the, the, new, the new president in Taiwan in January next year should ask for a policy review of the relationship with the Americans. A detailed policy review that examines some of the issues we've all mentioned here today. That can we expand our ties with the Americans without necessarily sleeping with our old girlfriend, or in this case, it'd be boyfriend in Washington, DC. There's not much of this kind of review. When I've seen several new presidents take over in Taiwan, they have many topics they bring up in their inauguration address, often as we would expect domestic issues, but not this kind of policy review that what are the terms, what are the agreements the Americans have, have entered into with us, and has time changed? Should we, not to use another word, but should we rebalance our Americans with their relations and try some new approaches? I mean, that's, it sounds very simple. The new president should do a review but actually, if American think tanks helped describe what the relationship has been, this helps a new president in Taiwan do a review of what, what might be done differently in the future. I don't, one very quick thing, thing to add. I, first, I'm, I'm hesitant really to make any, it, it might be a, a very uncomfortable actually making any recommendation to a democratically elected uh, official on Taiwan. It's just I don't think it's my view to actually insert myself in, uh, in terms of making recommendations. A lot of smart people on Taiwan and the policy-making regime, so I wouldn't dare to um, second-guess them. I wouldn't make, having, having said that, with a couple of just things to consider, just emphasizing, number one, in terms of, in, in my view, what really has appeal here in Washington is at least portraying a, a somewhat of a census, in other words, sort of a loyal opposition, which whatever side, side it is, um, emphasize areas of commonality, particularly, going back to the sovereignty issue, particularly related that, Again, Taiwan, under, under its current ROC constitution, exists as an independent sovereign state today. Um, and that is not a declaration of independence. It's been a consistent position all along. That'd be one. Uh, number two, I mean, little things like um, marketing, I don't mean in a business sense, but marketing why Taiwan has intrinsic value. Um, and, and, and things like you know, trying to do more to, for example, Hong Kong with, with new national security law, state security law. There's some terms that say state security law. There's increasing pressure in Hong Kong for a lot of human rights organizations, democracy promotion organizations. 
um, under Hong Kong coming a lot under a lot more scrutiny. Uh, nonprofits, non non governmental organizations um, on Taiwan or in, in Hong Kong, but not necessarily being in your face in terms of promoting democracy. At least um, having Taiwan sort of be a safe haven just in case these organizations in Hong Kong need places to go. Um, that Taiwan could serve again as a sort of a, a beacon of, of what an open society uh, can be and, and what what's possible within you know in terms of other uh, culturally based you know Chinese other societies that have sort of Chinese culture that, that characterize them and so there's a lot more that, that, that can be done and it's already been done but so uh, another one um, in terms of in terms um, I'm probably in the vast minority uh, minority who thinks that um, Ambassador Shun, that's what he is, Representative Shun, um, uh, Tecro, in terms of the, the, the flag raising, um, I, I thought that was a, a needed move because it's important, even though it's painful, it's important to remind people of objective reality. Um, and if there's one sort of one takeaway in terms of what emphasizing the most important thing to internalize, in, in my view, for Americans is objective reality and the starting point for any analysis on cross-rate issues is that basic fundamental reality, which is the legitimacy and the the existence of t the existence of two legitimate governments on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, and understanding everything else tends to be some, somewhat of a narrative, um, and, and so from there, um, I, I would say um, uh, understanding that from time to time, um, an assertion of, of Taiwan's legitimacy, I, I think, is needed. Well. Ian Easton, Mark Stokes, Michael Pillsbury, uh, thank you very much for your comments. This is a very interesting and useful discussion this morning. And uh, thank you all for coming, and we look forward to seeing you at the next discussion um, on similar topics and others. Afternoon. <laughs>